Hi, and welcome to the fifth episode of Safer Democracy. This is the fourth and last episode of what's gotten to be a very long series on the consequences of the 1954 coup against President Arbenz in Guatemala. What's more, it looks like this is going to be the longest episode yet of the show, getting into two-hour territory. But I'll leave an intermission in the middle for you. Three hours into the minutiae of these events in Guatemala, and it might seem like we're getting pretty far away from the point of the show, the point of the podcast, to explore the foreign policy of the United States. I mean, I've mentioned it here and there, but I haven't really drilled down like I did in the episode about the coup. That changes this time around, right around the halfway point, so you'll have to soldier through to get to it, but rest easy. It's there. Way, way back in 1930, when we started looking at the situation in Guatemala, it seemed grim. And apart from brief brightenings during the 10 years of spring and while Catholic Action and the Committee for Campesino Unity were making their marks in the 1970s, things have stayed grim. And for the most part, they've gotten worse. This episode won't change that pattern. And even at the very end, although Guatemala is better off now in many ways than it was under the rule of Mendez Montenegro or Colonel Arano Osorio, the butcher of Zacapa, in other ways, it's worse. I'm going full speed in this show to try to bring it to a close in less than two hours. But again, as I'm writing this, that's not sure yet. So there will be a little less explanation of the full run of the events in the last four shows. If you're new to this series, you are definitely going to want to go back and start at the beginning. One last word before we start. Things are going to get graphic in this episode, and I'll let you know when they're coming up, but here's the trigger warning right at the beginning. Alright, everybody ready? Good. I'm Jonathan Coombs. And this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. I've got to start this section with another trigger warning, because things are about to get messy again. And not messy like in the late 60s when there were bare reports of casualties and vague descriptions of campaigns. This time around the violence was centered in the Ixcan, where all of the historians and anthropologists seemed to have collected their largest number of witnesses and accounts. Graphic accounts of what happened from the people that survived make up a large part of this section. 
If you don't want to hear any of that, it's a decision I can respect. But if you want to get a full picture of what went on in Guatemala, a situation caused more or less directly at the outset by the thoughtless meddling of the United States and supported passively and actively by subsequent American administrations, you'll have to ride it out. I'll give you another little heads up as the witnesses come in and try to remember to include a timestamp to let you know when it's over with. The Army at this time, in February 1982, began conducting what's called a sweep operation, and they carried it out according to U.S. counterinsurgency manuals that were developed over the course of the Vietnam War and were carried to Guatemala by Green Berets and military attaches for use in their assistance and training of the Guatemalan Armed Forces. You all know how the Vietnam War turned out. Some of you may also know that for a long time there, there was and may still be a strain of thought among the military and some politicians that if the U.S. Army had just been given a free hand in Vietnam, we would have won. Guatemala is a place where you can see what that free hand would have looked like and what its results would have been. The counter-argument to the free hand is more or less a simple question, and that is, at what cost? And it's a question that Guatemala will likewise be able to answer. I'm going to talk a little more in depth about counterinsurgency as a science or a method of warfare later, but I want to point something out right now because I think it will shortly be relevant. Why is counterinsurgency distinct from just, you know, war? Well, because insurgents, or guerrillas, by definition, don't fight in the open field, and they often don't wear uniforms, although in Guatemala's case, it seems from the witness reports that they were often in distinctive camouflage. And how does counterinsurgency work? By attacking the insurgents, or guerrillas, or freedom fighters themselves, sure. But by their nature, they're hard to find, and by the nature of guerrilla war, they attempt to fight on ground that they're more familiar with than the state, and in areas that are remote and easy to ambush. Guerrillas, for the most part, are able to ignore the lines of supply that more regular forces depend on, and are able to travel light because they supply themselves on the march. How? Occasionally, if they get lucky by raiding army bases or patrols, but that's the most dangerous possible route for them. So by and large, they get their supplies from villages and communities in their areas of operation. By attacking or raiding them? No, because if they did that, the villages would quickly invite the army in and begin to defend themselves. So how do they do it? By befriending the villagers, building alliances, and working communities into the guerrilla structure, either as active participants or as passive supply stops, or even just by building relationships with one or two families in a given pueblo. Why would the villages supply that support to a group of armed thugs trying to tear down their society? Well, that's the crux. If you're fighting a counterinsurgency, or your country is funding or arming or otherwise supporting a counterinsurgency, you can't just take your government's word that they're dangerous terrorists or whatever the word of the day is for brown people that we don't like. You gotta ask yourself why a poor villager might willingly turn over some of what little he has to be a guerrilla. And it turns out almost always that it's because the ruling regime is bad. And for the situation to have deteriorated to that state, it means that the ruling regime is both bad and unresponsive, that it cannot be changed through the normal processes of democracy or whatever system they have in place. You have to be especially careful these days when the label terrorist is so quickly and so easily applied by governments and the press worldwide. Because although there have definitely been bad insurgents in the history of the world, the Khmer Rouge or ISIS before they'd established their mini-state, for example, very few, if any, insurgencies start out that way. They wouldn't be able to, because they owe their existence to the willing participation of the people in the countryside. The other interesting thing is that it's difficult to find an insurgency that turned bad without also finding that there was some outside power propping the state up. 
because almost any state that can generate an insurgency is usually so oppressive that much of its population is already willing to rise up against it. So if you've got quote-unquote bad guerrillas in Vietnam or Cambodia or Iraq or Indonesia or Nicaragua or Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala, look at the state and whether or not it's a good partner in government with the people it ought to be beholden to. And then look at where the money's coming from. Because in all of those cases, it was the United States. And in others, like Syria, it's Russia. Guerrillas turn quote-unquote bad during long, protracted conflicts, after the state, with outside cash and foreign counterinsurgency manuals, has fortified villages and made it impossible for the people to peacefully feed and clothe the guerrillas. And you might say, well, of course the state is going to try to win. And that's true. Any state will work to defend itself. But you should also ask if a state has so failed its people that they're willing to give over corn and clothes to ragged bands of men in the jungle, should we ever be supporting the government looking to keep itself in power? In any case, the Guatemalan army and President Lucas Garcia decided in late 1981 that it was time to regroup for an east-to-west sweep through the north designed to push the rebels back into Mexico and out of their strongholds in the Ixcan and the rest of the north of Huehuetenango and El Quiche states. And when they first moved out of Playa Grande in the east, they discovered what we were talking about at the end of the last chapter, that in their absence the villagers had wrecked the airstrips, had painted slogans and hung signs, none too complimentary of the government. They and the guerrilla army of the poor, the EGP, believed that the tide was turning and that they were now in liberated territory. But they had only been marking themselves as allies of the rebels, and the brief pause in the winter of 1982 was only a calm before the storm. From Ricardo Faya's book, quote, The army began its scorched earth offensive, not in Ixcan Grande, but in the eastern part of the jungle. It was carried out in waves from the Chishoy River moving from the east to the west, on weekends when the army lashed out at the cooperative's urban centers. On the weekend of 13 February, the army carried out massacres that resulted in the killings of between 12 and 17 people in Santa Maria Ceja, between 27 and 41 in Santo Tomas, about 15 in San Lucas, and seven on the road. On 18 February, the army massacred 10 people. On the weekend of 20 February, it massacred 13 persons in Polygono. And on the weekend of 27 February, the army went to Calvil Balam, killing 14. The army advanced toward Ixcan Grande, where most of my witnesses are from, and began to massacre on 13 March. End quote. Those are low numbers, but they're not the whole story. The sheer horror of what those communities experienced is one element. Another is that after a massacre, when most of the population of a given community had escaped, the army didn't then leave in peace. They burned the towns to the ground, destroying everything they found because everything could be of use to the guerrillas. So these villagers, whether or not they'd ever participated in the guerrilla, and more power to them if they had, lost at the very least the community they'd built and the work of a decade or more. And there were few that lost so little. What's more, while the settlers and villages set up by the INTA, the National Institute for Agrarian Transformation, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, had a little in common besides their need for land, and for that reason could be made to inform on each other, and thus died in dribs and drabs by abductions and torture, the villages that had been founded by or formed through liberation theology and Acción Católica had extremely strong community ties and shared values and would not inform on each other which meant that in the eyes of the army, their entire communities were traitorous and had to be eliminated wholesale. Beatriz Mann's book, Paradise and Ashes, has a long eyewitness account of the destruction of Santa Maria Tzeca, 
one of the longest-lived cooperative communities, and the one founded by Father Luis Guriaran, the priest from the Congregation of the Sacred Heart in Spain. This is where it gets ugly, so check out now if you have to. Quote, On February 13, 1982, a long column of soldiers traveled that twisted path weighed down with combat gear in the languid heat. Their feet sank in thick mud. The late afternoon sunlight reflected off their automatic weapons. As they proceeded, hidden sentries from the village watched them approach with deep apprehension. Already the villagers knew that the army had slaughtered all the inhabitants of a nearby settlement two days earlier. So when the sentries gave pre-range signals, the villagers grabbed their children and fled into the sanctuary of the thick rainforest. When the first soldiers entered the village, they found fires burning, food still cooking, and wash laid out by the river. But the villagers had vanished, and only the noise of the troops themselves and the sounds of the rainforest broke the eerie silence. Since the targets of their march had eluded them, the soldiers turned on what remained. Over the next several days, they destroyed what had taken a decade to build. They looted everything of value, slaughtered animals, and torched everything else. Hiding in the rainforest, the villagers, about a hundred families, could hear the staccato bursts of gunfire and see the flames consuming their dreams. During their incursion, the soldiers stumbled across a lone woman whom they raped, beat senseless, and murdered, dumping her battered body near the village cooperative. When nothing more remained to destroy, the troops packed up and began heading south to the next village. Crouching in fear in the jungle undergrowth, trembling mothers had stuffed rags into the mouths of their infants so they would not cry. As the last soldier passed, a small dog barked. The column immediately halted and turned back to investigate. They soon located a pregnant woman, her infant, and two boys left in her care. Meanwhile, Pedro Lux and his son Anke Lux ran to warn their family that an army column was on the way. Running desperately through the forest, Angel, the little boy, was nonetheless too late. He heard the soldiers yell something at the terrified woman and children, indicating without doubt that the troops knew they had run across a group of unarmed civilians, and then he listened in shock as the soldiers emptied their weapons into the cowering group. As the bleeding bodies lay on the ground, a soldier threw a grenade to finalize the carnage. The unit then began examining the area more thoroughly, quickly locating a second group of eight children, their pregnant mother and a grandmother. The soldiers moved against them with indescribable fury, firing their weapons at point-blank range. The soldiers ripped open the pregnant woman's stomach and tore out her unborn baby. A little girl who had not been killed in the fusillade of bullets was tossed in the air and bayoneted. A young boy, Edwin Canil, managed to run and hide behind a fallen tree trunk, becoming the only witness to a bloodletting that wiped out his world. I remembered what we had been told to do if the army came, he later said. There was a lot of noise, smoke, everyone was screaming. My sisters, he recalled tearfully. I continued running any way I could. My goal was to get out of there. I was not afraid. When I was running, I turned my head and saw one of my sisters was following me. I continued running. I turned my head again. My sister was no longer there. I stopped and I hid behind a fallen tree trunk. He had jumped into thick, sharp brush that was cutting his skin. From there, he observed the carnage. The army killed them all. Perhaps they did not notice when I fled. I do not understand why. I saw it all. I saw it all well. My baby sister was crying. A soldier took out a knife and opened my little sister's stomach and threw everything out on the ground. My sister no longer cried. The news of the massacre spread fast even though the population was dispersed and hiding. Many had heard the gunfire and the screams. The hundred or so families made an immediate, drastic decision to kill all of their dogs to avoid a repeat encounter with marauding soldiers. No one had any doubts what they all would have been murdered had the army been able to locate them. 
The villagers were apprehensive about going to the site of the carnage, fearing the army may be waiting for them. Manuel, Edwin's father, said, I couldn't go there right away. I don't know why. Truly, I could not. About five days later, I went. They were still hurled there, on top of each other, swollen. I could not recognize them. He quickly covered the bodies with a few branches. About a month later, on a Sunday, they returned to bury them. We put one on top of the other in two deep holes, some this way, some that way, then on top. We buried them in that same place because we could not take them out. I asked him what they were like. He looked down and then cried. Decomposed, just skeletons. All that is flesh you cannot see. Worse yet, the little children. I could not bear it. I could not bear being there. The pain was so great. It was a tremendous sorrow. End quote. The survivors of Santa Maria Zeca stayed in the woods. When the army moved on to Santo Tomas, they killed 41, and four or five hundred escaped to the jungle while their village burned. On the list of 41 names that Ricardo Faya recorded, and he recorded many names because he saw his role in the aftermath, not having been able to topple the regime from the city where he had been working as a Jesuit with the opposition, as being a witness to their martyrdoms and to the joy inherent in the bare survival of the rest. He has a note at the bottom of that list of names, explaining what the letters are that he's left after each. B is for burned, T is for tortured, TS is for throat slit, and S is for shot. Some of them also bear an asterisk, which means burned and tortured in the Catholic Church according to his source. For some massacres, like those of cardamom sellers along the road on February 13th, or of four families in San Lucas on the 15th, Faya has no names and no stories to report, because no one who was there has lived. These killings and burnings went on like that, with most of the village escaping through the end of February, and then there was a two-week gap. But I do want to explain why I'm going through all these horrors, it's not that I liked reading them the first time, or highlighting them, or reading them again to put together the script for the show, or reading them out loud to you now. And it's not that I think any of you want to hear them. It's that I agree with Faya, that if you can't or couldn't stop them, it's important to bear witness to them. And it's just as important for us as the inheritors of the country that aided and abetted them, and of a country that is right now, and in all likelihood will in the future aid and abet things just like them, to look the horror right in the face. These are smaller numbers than I brought up in 69 or in 79, smaller than the thousands that I brought out of the Amnesty International reports. But how many people that you know would have to die before it became important to you? Before it became the most important thing that had ever happened to you? Because those numbers for their sheer scale are horrifying, but they're too easy to ignore, too easy to file away among the other things that you know. The horror for the victims was in every case individual, their family, their village, their body. And while I don't have the time or the courage to reproduce all of the accounts gathered in all of the books that I've read, I have a few more, and I want you to come with me. Because now, it's the only thing we can do for them. It's what we owe the survivors and the dead, to bear witness. And to take those memories with us, and to bring them to bear whenever we think our country might be party to something like them again. The Catholic Church's official dogma has gotten more liberal in the last few decades, and one of the interesting things about it is that if you're a good person, and were never given a chance to hear the Gospels, no problem, you go to heaven. It's only if you hear them and understand them and then reject them that you're in trouble. And I used to think, well, then don't preach them to anybody, because that seems safer. And I'm still not sure why I come down on the Catholic issue, but I think history in some cases can hold the same moral weight. 
If you grew up without much education and you love the United States and all it does, and we're taught that Vietnam was a noble struggle and that Iraq was absolutely necessary, there's nothing wrong with you and nothing wrong with that. But if you've chosen to listen to this podcast, and I think that once you've heard it or once you've gotten any of this information somewhere else, there's no going back. No pretending that the party line is the truth again and that it's okay to keep acting the way you were before. We, you and I, are all now bearing witness. And that means carrying it with you, acting on it, today, tomorrow, next week, until the ends of our lives. Now, there's a reason the army was attacking on the weekends, and it has to do with why some of these numbers are so low and others so high. And it also has to do with why I explained to you, a way back, how these cooperative communities were laid out. The army couldn't attack during the week because the villagers lived in small houses beside their plots of land. They only came together in one place on Sundays, to worship and hold markets. In the cases of the lucky ones, that they were all in town let the warning spread to the whole population quickly, allowing most of them to escape. In some other communities, like Cuarto Pueblo, the warnings didn't come, or didn't come soon enough, and the people were unable to get out. The army approached Cuarto Pueblo on the 14th of March, 1982, early in the morning. Faya's first witness was a man who was not planning on going into town that day. The man had had a dream telling him that the army was coming and that he could go and witness if he wanted to. The man went. What he found at 9.30 a.m. was the majority of the town gathered in the central square while Catholic and evangelical services were going on in the respective chapels on the outskirts of the small community. Shortly after he arrived, a military helicopter flew twice over the village, signaling that the army was on the way. The witness, Felipe, tried to convince the people gathered there to run, but the military commissioners in the town, less convinced of the army's evil intentions, counseled the people to stay, that fleeing would only indicate to the military that they were collaborating with the guerrillas. Felipe did not win the argument, and even if he had, he could not have got away, because the army, maybe improving on their methods of the previous weeks, approached quickly and quietly, encircling the town. A group of charismatic Catholics, belonging to a sect aligned more with the anti-communist government and evangelical Christianity than with liberation theology, were in a higher place in the square and would have had time to escape, but were convinced that they were in no danger from the military because of their affiliation, and they convinced more people who would otherwise have run to stay. As the two columns of soldiers encircling the village came into sight, the resolve of some of the villagers broke, and they began to run which is when the soldiers opened fire, shooting indiscriminately into the crowd, and especially at those campesinos making for the jungle, a bare few of whom escaped. Faya's witness Felipe was shot through the shirt, but fell down as if he were dead, and thus escaped the initial onslaught. Felipe made his way to a log and burrowed into the hollow beneath it, where he stayed for four days, which is how he managed to bring his account to Faya. The army gathered the living in different areas of the town, separating men from women and killing many of the youngest children because they were difficult to manage. From Faya, quote, It seems that the child was a baby in his mother's arms, but the testimony is not clear. A soldier who perhaps felt incapable of looking after the child and was conscious of the order to kill everyone grabbed him by the leg and smashed his head against the ground, End quote. Half the troops began interrogating the men and women for their knowledge about the guerrilla, and the other half raided the village for its food and animals, while a helicopter arrived to take away its valuable cardamom harvest. 
The lieutenant in charge of the detachment decided after the interrogations, since all of the villagers had answered that they did not know anything about the guerrilla, that everyone would have to die. Later in the afternoon, the army began moving groups of people one by one to a hillock on the edge of the town center, where lines of soldiers would gun them down before moving on to another group. The witness, Felipe, couldn't see but only hear what was going on from his hiding place, and he reports that sometime after the shooting began, the army started to burn the bodies of the dead. The army also set fire to half the buildings in the center that day. At night, they corralled the women into a shed, and the witness reports that soldiers were in and out of the shed all night, talking openly of raping the women inside. In the morning, the lieutenant in charge gave a speech to his men, encouraging them to finish off what they'd started. From Faya, quote, The first thing the lieutenant said was that the soldiers had to wipe out the entire town because it supported the guerrilla. They are friends of the guerrillas, but they aren't saying so. We have to finish them all off, to put an end to the guerrillas. We're going to do in a lot of them. That way they won't be able to help out the guerrillas, end quote. When some of the soldiers expressed a fear that the guerrilla would find them if they stayed in the village, the lieutenant told them not to worry, that they had a helicopter and a small plane in support. He said, and I'm quoting directly from Faya's witness, quote, Thanks to the United States helping us, our soldiers won't be wiped out, unquote. On that Monday, the soldiers killed all of the women, but one for each soldier, to cook and for the nighttime. They cordoned all of the children still alive into the mayor's office, then soaked it in diesel fuel and set it alight. By this point, some of the escapees had climbed a tall hill outside of town and were able to report to Faya what was going on. By Tuesday, all of the men were dead, and the soldiers killed each of the women they had been assigned. The army stayed for two more days in Cuarto Pueblo, searching for and murdering any survivors, burning the rest of what remained, and waiting to see if anyone else would come back to town to be captured, tortured, and killed. When on the 23rd of March, some men did return to the town, they saw this. Quote, No, not a single corpse had been thrown in the jungle because they were in the town. We reached the large school and beneath it was a pit. We went to it and saw it was covered with earth. There were bones in the pit. We dug around and saw that the bones had flesh. There were loads of bones that had not been burned. Most of the dead were thrown in that pit. And another place was the chapel. We reckoned there was about a hundred people there. The evangelicals gathered together with their loudspeakers when the army arrived. The charismatic Catholics had also gathered, but there were no remains or bones in their chapel. They burned down the Central American chapel. They burned down the loudspeakers. There we saw several freshly severed heads. We also found women's traques with ribbons in the chapel. They hadn't burned well. There were also the skirts of the dead women strewn around. There was a wooden fence around the chapel, and in the town there were plenty of metal barrels filled with gasoline and kerosene. Maybe they used them to light the fire. Unquote. And that's enough for stories for now, I think. One spot that was sometimes bright, and is in any case worth looking at, is the community's response to the violence that was taking place in and around them. One of the questions that Faya brings up after his account of the massacre in Cuarto Pueblo is what were the guerrillas doing during all this? Why weren't they defending the villagers? 
And the answer is that they simply didn't have the men or the armament to take on an army that had been supplied with weapons and vehicles from abroad, and which through forced recruitment had swelled to tens of thousands of men. Their actions in this period were limited to trying to warn the pueblos of what was going on. And a few days after Cuarto Pueblo, they occupied the municipal center at Chagbal for a few hours to gather the villagers and to try to convince them to leave. In all of these communities, there were brave men and women who also took it upon themselves to try to warn their neighbors. In the case of Cuarto Pueblo, Ricardo Faya records that at least one of the men who escaped the initial shooting in the town then went around to the centers spread out among the plots of land to warn people who had stayed home. He hurried, because he believed that the army might be right on his heels, but in each case he stayed with families as long as it took to convince them to run. He advised them to gather up food and supplies, and in the many instances in which he found children who had been left at home, he took them with him, by the end gathering a large group of what had become orphans, who he cared for in their flight to the jungle. Again, you have to see that the news of what was going on could only travel by rumor and on foot, and only then through campesinos who were brave enough to get back on the road, knowing that the army could descend on a community at any moment. We sitting here decades later know that the army was operating only on weekends, and only in the town centers, but none of that was clear at the time. In many cases, though, those hard-won warnings weren't listened to, or weren't followed. Faya looks at a few possibilities as to why. He notes that in many cases, majority Ladino or white communities were spared, whereas Mayan ones were wiped out. Other Maya communities then had contact with the Ladinos, with whom the army had just talked, and came away with the impression that violence was not imminent. Many, like the charismatic Catholics in Cuarto Pueblo, along with the evangelicals and card-carrying members of the ultra-conservative Movement for National Liberation, thought that their affiliations and papers would save them from the army, although they invariably did not. As to why, receiving any news this terrible, everyone didn't just, for safety's sake, take off to the jungle, Faya and some of the other folks I've read have some guesses there too. And what it boils down to is that escaping wasn't as easy as we'd like to believe. Besides the small patches the colonists had carved out, Huehuitenango and El Quiche were mostly jungle in the area of the Ixcan, with little edible food growing and beset with all the dangers of jungle life. Mosquitoes carrying malaria and dengue, water full of parasites, poisonous insects and plants, fungal infections from the damp and constant rainfall, and the fact that these peasants were unprepared to up and move to the wilderness. They didn't have massive stores of imperishable goods or strong tents, or even, necessarily, much skill in living outside of a community. There was also, even in a country as violent as Guatemala had been, an unwillingness to recognize that in the eyes of the state, Maya campesinos had ceased to be citizens, or even people in their own right. They paid their taxes, paid for their lands, participated in official events, carried identification papers. How soon would you be willing to abandon everything you knew and had built to live in the woods because of rumors you'd heard? How soon would you accept that you had become persona non grata in your own country, subject to extermination on site by the government that had always said it would protect you? Now, getting back to counterinsurgency, the High Command designed Operación Senisa, their name for the set of massacres carried out through the northern highlands and jungles, as well as operations that would come afterwards, around counterinsurgency theory that they had inherited from allies and supporters, like the United States and Israel, from whom they'd received huge amounts of military equipment and aid. Whenever it was possible, and often when it was wholly implausible, the army sought to pin the responsibility for its actions on the rebels. They'd inform one village that the massacre in the next had been the guerrillas, they'd dress up dead guerrillas or civilians as soldiers, and station soldiers dressed as guerrillas near the bodies, or just dressed as the guerrillas did when they killed the civilians, and then loudly announced that they'd done so in service of the revolution. That sounds clumsy and ineffective, but it was not necessarily so. 
On one end, when the side of the guerrillas isn't public or well demarcated, it's easier than you might think to convince people that want to be convinced, like conservative peasants, the international press, and supporters like the United States. On the other side, especially in a time and a place without any reliable news, sowing dissent and confusion among even the rebels themselves could be actionable. We know that in the U.S., the FBI and the CIA had great success in infiltrating anti-war and civil rights groups around the same time. And as recently as 2014, the protests about the 43 disappeared students from Ayotzinapa in Mexico were greatly discredited when two unidentified men set fire to the doors of the National Cathedral. Those men were widely believed to have been agent provocateurs of the Mexican police, but that didn't stop them from scaring the more conservative half of Mexico away from sympathy with the dead. The counterinsurgency also followed the geography described in American manuals from Vietnam. They recommended concentrating first on populated rural zones, which the army did until violence flared up in 1979. Then they recommended exterminating the threat in the cities, which the military and the police did through 81. Then they recommended conducting sweeps from densely populated rural areas through sparsely populated ones, pushing the rural population into less and less habitable areas in an effort to ensure that both they and the guerrilla died out, which is what the army began doing during Operacion Sinisa in 1982. The encirclement followed by the interrogation in Cuarto Pueblo was a surround and search technique, described almost identically in a counterinsurgency monograph written by American ally Brigadier General Tran Dinh Tho called Pacification, which is housed in the U.S. Army Center of Military History in its collection of American techniques used in Vietnam. We'd like to believe that the subsequent killings weren't an official part of at least U.S. counterinsurgency policy. The massacres like the one at My Lai, conducted during similar operations, lay doubt on that assertion. Unsurprisingly, there were racial under- and overtones to the violence going on during the insurgency in the 1980s. I'll let Ricardo Fai explain some of that to you. The part that's a little bit more complicated than Maya's bearing the brunt because they weren't white. Fai thinks that there was something somewhat deeper going on. Quote, The decision to massacre lays bare the Ladino's uncertainty of his own identity, a hidden insecurity. The decision deceptively overcomes this sense of insecurity. Take, for example, the officer in the cooperative who asked about the rebels. He was met with laughter and evasion till he lost control, picked up his gun, and aimed it at them, telling them their uncooperative attitude would be punished. The officer was hurt and humiliated by the whole community. He felt impotent, unable to fathom or control their world. Matters were made worse by the stereotype he had of Indians as being easy to deceive. Why then could he not control them? How could a child or a vile and despicable being trick him? His hurt pride and frustration gave way to great anger, which motivated him to exterminate not just one person, but the whole community. I can't control you? Well, you'll see. I'll wipe you off the face of the earth. These reactions must have taken place not only in the low-ranking officers, but all the way up the military hierarchy. The officers in charge of counterinsurgency were probably influenced by the psychological and social need to overcome their sense of humiliation. End quote. By the end of the first series of massacres, even the army had tired of the policies and strategies employed by Lucas Garcia, seeing them as counterproductive and as pushing the campesinos into the arms of the guerrillas. So on March 17th, when Lucas Garcia's chosen successor won the presidential election through widespread vote-rigging and fraud, a group of junior army officers, led by the man who had won and been deprived of the election in 1974, General Efrain Urios Montt, deposed him and set up a military junta with himself in power. Minority Rights Group International set the death toll for 1981 and early 1982 at 11,000 civilians, almost all of them peasants from the interior. 
Aguantamos cualquier tipo de dolor aunque nos duela. Aguantamos Pinochet, aguantamos a Videla, Franco, Mau, Ríos, Mont, Mugabe, Hitler y Diamín, Stalin, Bush, Truman, Ariel, Sharon y Hussein. Although the coup technically resulted in the installation of a junta, from the beginning it was understood that Ríos Mont was running the show. And despite the way he came into his office, his rise to power was wet with optimism both at home and abroad. Since he'd been the candidate of the left-of-center Christian Democrats in 1974, and since he'd overthrown both the brutal Lucas Garcia and his chosen successor, many Guatemalans thought that the coup had at last ended the violence and would prove to be the turning point. In the United States, the Reagan administration was excited to have someone who would at the very least probably be less obvious in his human rights violations. Besides that, Riosmont was an evangelical Christian, not a Catholic, which won him points and support from Reagan and from evangelical organizations in the States, like Campus Crusade for Christ and the Unification Church of Sung Myung Moon. And it looks as though things would improve. Riosmont had the junta declare him head of state, effectively president, on the 9th of June. And on that day, he declared a month-long amnesty to give the guerrilla time to react to his regime and either lay down arms or come in for talks. In the interim, from March to June, he and his men set about dismantling and replacing some of the old regime. They raided the properties of now ex-officials and discovered, for instance, that the defense minister's house, the home of the man who would have been the next president, was full of secret jail cells and torture chambers and was stuffed with the property of the dead. They also set about writing a national plan for security and development to replace the national security doctrine. Whatever Rios Mont's intentions, they still had a country full of rebels who, to them, either had to be convinced or defeated. I've got a couple of interesting little excerpts from that plan here. The rest of it is about improving organizational structure and the equipment of the armed forces, for the most part. Quote, In the psychosocial arena, structure and determine nationalism, promote and foment it in all the organs of the state, and irradiate the rural areas with it. Assure that it forms part of the educational process of the population as a doctrine opposed to international communism. Assure that programs designed to reduce levels of illiteracy operate efficiently to make the population more permeable to new ideas and to augment the efficacy of actions meant to form and maintain nationalism. End quote. Now, there are a couple of interesting things in those first two short paragraphs. The first is that they're trying to fight the guerrilla on ideological ground for the first time. They want to inculcate the population with nationalism. And probably for the first time, the Guatemalan military found itself invested in the literacy of the Guatemalan people. Because at last, they'd realized that what the guerrillas and the organizers and Catholic action radio stations had been doing for more than 10 years had been working. They taught the people to read and then given them something to be read. They also wanted to turn the struggle against the guerrillas into a national struggle. Up to this point, it had been a war between the rebels and the forces of the state, with all neutral parties being pushed closer and closer to revolution by a strategy of oppression that counted neutrals as enemies. Here, instead, they wanted to use, quote, every organ of the state, unquote, from television to radio to schools to newspaper to what have you, to hammer home that to be a patriot or a nationalist was to support the state. So that's interesting. And the other thing is that they're still deeply confused about what they're fighting against. At no point... Literally no point was any guerrilla organization or even any communist party in Guatemala fighting for international communism. Nobody was receiving directions from the Common Turn or the Central Committee. The closest that any Guatemalan group got to quote-unquote international communism was the limited support that the URNG, the National Guatemalan Revolutionary Union, received from Cuba in helping to form itself out of the FAR, the EGP, and the ORPA. 
And even there, Cuba wasn't sticking to some diktat from the Kremlin, but to its long-term strategy to try to unseat dictators all across Latin America. A tiny side about that, too, you might have heard of Che Guevara wanting to create Vietnams in Latin America. It's a quote that we like because it's appropriately sinister for a quote-unquote communist that we feared and then defeated, or, well, murdered in the jungles of Bolivia. But it's actually part of a much longer paragraph in a much longer article, which reads, quote, How close we could look into a bright future should two, three, or many Vietnams flourish throughout the world with their share of deaths and their immense tragedies, their everyday heroism and their repeated blows against imperialism, unquote. So when Che talks about creating Vietnams or Cuba acts on a similar strategy, they weren't talking about senselessly murdering thousands of Americans. They were talking about taking down, through popular uprisings, regimes that the United States supported that were senselessly murdering thousands of their own citizens, like Vietnam and like Guatemala. And the army misunderstood not only that Guatemalan communism was not international communism, but was actually a mix of Marxist economic critiques, Maya revindication, ethnic empowerment, and peasant unity the combined force of which was, I think by any measure, more patriotic or nationalistic than the state itself, which represented only a small ethnic minority that itself rejected everything non-European about Guatemala. Which is to say that the nationalism of the state's plan was probably a pretty hard sell among the indigenous population. The second little bit that I like from the security and development plan is a little more ominous. Quote, in the military arena, propose the formation of international, multilateral, or bilateral agreements that assure an effective interchange of intelligence and assistance between countries in the area and the subversive elements of common interest. Determine the countries, institutions, and organizations that promote and support subversive movements and groups. Collect information about counterinsurgency actions and methods that have been applied in other countries. End quote. Once again, a couple of things here. The first section there, about forming agreements, meant forming agreements with the dictatorial or authoritarian regimes in the region, like Brazil, Haiti under Duvalier, Panama under Noriega, and El Salvador, not counting all the similar countries further south. All of them had insurgencies of some size, and what's more, all of them were receiving support from and coordinating with the United States. So you see what I mean when I say I've got near-infinite topics for this show. And it meant rebuilding ties to the U.S. itself, at least those that Lucas Garcia had managed to erode when the State Department switched to its wait-and-see approach. Although arms never stopped flowing. And the second section is pretty straightforward. If before the Guatemalans took advice from and riffed on the methods in U.S. counterinsurgency manuals, now they would be implementing them wholesale. Although why, with our limited success in insurgent conflicts, anyone ever took our advice is a mystery to me. But literally everyone did. So there you go. The other document that the Rios Mont regime produced during this early period was called Victoria 82 for 1982, a strategy explicitly for the army. Entonces lo que yo voy a dejar es a mis soldados ahí. Y les voy a decir aquí hay guatemaltecos. Y el que no se ajuste a las leyes guatemaltecas tiene que ser juzgado por las leyes guatemaltecas. El que no se el que no se rinda lo voy a fusilar. Just a quick note for you guys before I get into the plan, I'm going to be drawing a lot of quotes from the National Security Archive briefing book on Victoria 82, usually just a sentence here or there, and almost all from embassy or State Department cables. So if you catch me saying, quote, without giving an attribution, it's from the briefing book. And if the cables are from somewhere more interesting, like the CIA, I'll mention that. 
So while the plan for security and development was the national plan, Victoria 82 was to be the new counterinsurgency doctrine for the armed forces. According to the briefing book, quote, the commands involved will conduct operations of security, development, counter-subversive, and ideological warfare in the respective areas of responsibility, with the objective to locate, capture, or destroy subversive groups or elements. Rios-Mont's new plan combined past tactics with social welfare programs in an effort to mitigate the brutal counterinsurgency sweeps with government assistance." End quote. Problem, of course, with singling out insurgent elements is that when the entire countryside is de facto subversive, or at least subversive in the eyes of the regime, is that distinctions get muddy on the ground. The main thrust of the plan was called the Beans and Rifles Program, and that's how you can find it in old newspapers and magazines. Cultural Survival Quarterly wrote about it at the time, saying, quote, The government's Indian program includes three stages. A survival stage where food, housing, and work is provided to Indian refugees in model villages or strategic hamlets. A pre-development stage where the displaced peoples are relocated to their home villages and security measures are coordinated in order to establish the basis for development. And a development stage where supporting state institutions carry out specific program tasks, end quote, like building infrastructure or assisting in U.S. aid projects. The phrase strategic hamlet might be more familiar to you than model villages if you've done any reading about Vietnam, or, really, even about the Cuban War of Independence at the end of the 19th century. Villagers would be evacuated from wherever they lived, or gathered up if where they lived had already been burned, and then placed in fortified compounds somewhere between a refugee and a concentration camp. In the interim, the army would sweep through their territory, and once they'd cleared it, they'd move the peasants back. But instead of living how they had previously, in tight-knit communities who had all come from the same place in the highlands, or who had all come together through Acción Católica or what have you, the army mixed several villages together and crowded them into much smaller plots of land, concentrating and diminishing the area that they'd have to defend against the guerrilla. Likewise, the peasants, no longer familiar with their neighbors and no longer able to spread out as comfortably as before, would not have had the kind of community trust necessary to support the rebels. And finally, instead of living out by their plots of land, or even in the distributed centers, the people would have to live in the fortified towns, more vulnerable than ever to the whims of the army. Or at least that was the plan. Ricardo Faya has an account of one of the beans type of meetings between the army and the village in the Ixcan. First the patrol gathered all the peasants in town, and then, quote, the soldiers shut them in the church all night, and then the patrol leader talked to them. The essence of his message was that the army did not kill. It looked after the civilian population and everyone should therefore return to town. If the people were all together, the army could protect them from the guerrillas and organize them. The capture lasted for an entire day and night, and the people were forced to sing for hours on end, and were not allowed to eat." Unquote. Which is about as well as you'd expect that kind of meeting to go after everything we've heard. After they let the villagers out of the church, a helicopter with a large basket of tamales arrived, and the soldiers, quote, made a big show of it, unquote, handing them out to the terrified peasants. Remember at this point that they know there's been a change of government, but they also know that short weeks beforehand these same soldiers were probably murdering people they knew. And that the army would defend them from the guerrillas was probably not that appealing, since the army had committed atrocities, and in this town, weeks before, the rebels had come peacefully to warn them about the military. But that was how it went, with the army, when it was more or less peacefully talking with the campesinos. While the Beans and Rifles program sounded good and was broadcast by the government abroad, Victoria 82 had some other elements. From the briefing book, quote, A U.S. defense attaché report informed Washington in April that the army intended to act with two sets of rules, one to protect the rights of average citizens who lived in secure areas, mostly in the cities, and had nothing to do with subversion. The second set of rules would be applied to the areas where subversion was prevalent, 
Gorillas would be destroyed by fire and their infrastructure eradicated by social welfare programs, end quote. Of course, the average citizen in Guatemala at the time didn't live anywhere near the cities and didn't look anything like the good white Latinos that the plan was referring to. The average Guatemalan was dark-skinned, indigenous, and rural, living often in close contact with guerrillas, whether they supported them or not. But that distinction was intentional. From the briefing book, quote, The perceived success of the guerrillas, particularly the guerrilla army of the poor, in appealing to the Mayan population on the basis of the state's record of violence and neglect in those communities, alerted the armed forces to the dangers of ignoring the country's indigenous poor, end quote. And while Victoria 82 made an ostensible distinction between guerrillas and peasants, it aimed to eliminate the so-called local irregular forces, or FILs, FILs, who are peasants and who work for the guerrilla in the same way that military commissioners work for the army. Unarmed and with their own life and work, they lived in the villages and sometimes lent information or aid to the rebels. With the army explicitly looking for what could, in effect, be any villager, few villagers were then safe. The real aim was the only way to eliminate a guerrilla force, the elimination of anyone who might support them, which in this case meant returning all of the Maya campesinos to a state of absolute subjection. To do that, the army needed to increase its control over rural areas through, according to the Truth Commission report, quote, registration posts on the highways and in urban centers, population censuses, curfews, inspections of individual documents and issuance of passes, search operations, capture of guerrilla sympathizers, in addition, political meetings were prohibited and control exercised over the water supply in rural areas, over medicine and money, and over the production, storage, and distribution of food, end quote. Victoria 82 was in the works at the same time as the plan for national security and development, from the coup through the month of amnesty in June. From the briefing book, quote, In sum, Plan Victoria 82 described the creation of a state purged of subversive elements by a war without limits, in the words of Rios Montt and then totally militarized through an extensive infrastructure of social control, indoctrination, and repression. The army commanders throughout the country were ordered to hurry their preparations for the offensives that would immediately follow the end of the amnesty." End quote. Genuine amnesties at the end of armed conflicts are often the only way for a country to recover from its wounds and work towards peace. They have been a mark of benevolent rule since the time of Julius Caesar, and have usually been the crucial first stepping stone towards reconciliation. A false amnesty, then, would have to be the opposite of all that hope. Rios Montt ended his amnesty well short of a month on the 1st of July, 1982. That same day, he declared a state of siege, just as the butcher of Zacapa, President Arana Osorio, had done in 1970. And the army rolled into El Quiche and Huehuetenango with redoubled force. They began instituting another element of Victoria 82, which was left over from the Lucas Garcia regime. They organized what were called civil defense patrols, patrullas de autodefensa civil, or PACs, PACs, in the villages. These were groups of up to hundreds of Maya peasants who were gathered and told by the army that they would now defend their villages and lead army patrols on searches for people in the jungle, either guerrillas that they'd had contact with or refugees who had fled to the jungle and formed what later became known as Communities of the Population Resistance, or CPRs. The patrols very rarely encountered guerrillas because the villagers rarely knew where they made their bases, but that was not the case with the CPRs. I'll talk a little bit more about them later, but they were groups who had escaped from the massacres and the cooperatives and set up even more radically cooperative communities in the middle of the jungle, farming corn and whatever else they needed to survive as internal refugees. Many peasants had had contact with the CPRs because of previous ties with their inhabitants, or because they'd lent them help or supplies, and the patrols had had much success in finding and destroying them. 
Why would these campesinos turn on each other in the packs and the patrols? Well, the recruitment left little to choice. Beatriz Mons has a quote about a doctor from Santa Maria Ceja who was taken to the army base at Playa Grande. Quote, he saw people from Santa Maria. Yes, they were there, but thank God, they came out alive from there. Little by little they came out, he said. Yes, they were tortured. Of course, they were very thin. And food? There was no food. The prisoners were tied. They would put them in water. They would shock them with electric cables. I was not shocked. They would only throw me in the water and beat me. I was tied up for about three days or four days, totally exposed to the sun. I remember one day, two officers came and began to kick me. I pretended to be dead so they would stop. They threw me in the river. I said, I am innocent and I will prove it to you. I will show you. He then began to cooperate with the army and inform. End quote. The army at that time also held that particular witness's wife. And in that same camp, they were killing five suspected guerrillas a day. It's one way to recruit. The actions of the patrols were particularly hard to take because love and community cohesion were what had stayed these peasants through the storms of the 1970s. Again from Mons, quote, The acts of sabotage and destruction were a particularly cruel blow to the families in resistance who attended the fields, since fellow villagers and even relatives were involved. That they identified the hidden locations and participated in the destruction of the crops were what made it so psychologically devastating, end quote. The army also made efforts to exploit religious differences between Catholics, Charismatics, and Evangelicals, giving preferential treatment or organizing them into separate patrols. They likewise did their best to abduct or eliminate figures of traditional authority in the villages in an attempt to tear down the bases of Mayan culture still evident there. And all of it, the model villages, the cramped new communities, the forced informants, the civil patrols, and the destruction of cultural and religious ties were all parts of an effective counterinsurgency. Yeah. I'm going to talk about counterinsurgency again, because I want to hammer home that any time you hear the word, it should give you pause, and it should make you question. And insurgency means that the people have turned against you, that the people are harboring insurgents because they're more comfortable with them than with the forces of the state. And launching a counterinsurgency means that you've decided to ignore whatever the situation is that has caused average men and women to risk their lives and those of their families to oppose you. And in an effective counterinsurgency, you're not winning the people to your side. That's called reform. In an effective counterinsurgency, you're turning the people against each other. And that's what they were doing in Guatemala. Each of the elements of Victoria 82 was meant to drive a wedge between the villagers and the guerrillas and between the villagers themselves. The violence of the army tended to knit villagers closest together, but by organizing them into civil patrols, even unwillingly, the army formed them into a unit in opposition to the guerrillas. Any guerrilla violence against the patrols coming to find them would immediately destroy years of built-up trust. And when the packs destroyed the fields and homes of the refugees in the jungle, they became complicit and further broke down the trust between themselves and other peasants. To break down the guerrilla, the army had to break down rural society. And in Victoria 82, they finally had the tools to do it. But while the image that Victoria 82 and the Rios Mont regime desired to project was more benevolent than that of Lucas Garcia, the strategy still informally went by the name Scorched Earth, and the killings continued. According to Beatriz Mans, quote, more than 600 massacres took place, more than half of them in El Quiche province, and during the most intense period of the military onslaught from 1981 to 1983, as many as 1.5 million people out of Guatemala's 8 million were displaced internally or had to flee the country, end quote. 
As an example, Ricardo Falla has an account from a town in the Ixcan called Piedras Blancas, where the army had set up a meeting of the people to determine what to do with them under their plan. The soldiers, about a hundred of them, arrived while the men were at work. The women, who were scared, ran to their chuj, or temascal, a kind of sauna that they also used as a shelter. That action, or maybe the purely indigenous makeup of the village, or that the men simply were not there, may have been what set the soldiers off. We will never know. Two villagers from a neighboring pueblo came to see two days later, and they had this to say. Quote, we entered fearfully. From the edge of the village, we saw that all the houses had been burned down. I felt terribly sad, and I'm sure my companion did too. Very quietly, we went down to the commissioner's house. We saw a lot of bodies there. They were strewn on the ground. The men were all bound. A rope was tied to a tree near the commissioner's house. All the men were lying outside, close to the house, and the house had been burned. The soldiers used a single piece of rope to tie up the men with their hands behind their backs. When the rope burned, their bodies keeled over on the ground outside the house. Inside the house lay the bodies of the women and children. There were three pregnant women. You could just make out the small corpses of the fetuses inside their mother's wombs. You could see their heads as they hadn't burned well. Their mother's bodies had been completely burned, but not the babies inside. We saw all of that. I didn't start counting, but my companion did. I was seized by a great fear, a great sadness. My heart ached when I saw all of this. The men lying on the ground had been decapitated with a hatchet. The hatchet was lying there. Only one man had been shot. You could see the bullet wound. He was lying about five or six meters away from the rest. He wasn't armed. So we thought, he obviously tried to escape, but they shot him, and there he fell. Only one of the other men lying there had been burned. As the house was nearby, the heat of the fire scorched him, and part of his body had been roasted. The witness's companion counted 61 corpses. Another witness went to see the dead and counted 65 in all. 13 were men. End quote. I'm not going to go through another litany of testimonies like that here, but rest assured that the country fared worse and not better under Rios Montt and Victoria 82. The massacres of Lucas Garcia mixed in with the total societal destruction of an extremely successful counterinsurgency. The briefing book reports that, quote, by early 1983, according to the U.S. Embassy, the military had pacified large areas of El Quiche, Chimaltenango, Verapaces, and Huehuetenango, end quote. So, that's where the script ended. I put together all of the words for the Aftermath shows up to this moment in a real flurry of writing during the last week of June, and I recorded them after the 4th of July, over a week up at the bungalow of a guy I was in Peace Corps with, James Dykstra, nestled in the Sierra Gorda of Querétaro State in Mexico. I've been editing and producing those recordings since then. But the thing was that I ran out of time to write before the recording week came up, and I left the script where it was, ending abruptly after Victoria 82. Now I've got to come back to it after all those weeks and carry it home to the end. Which feels like a burden. In a sense, I was done with this stuff. I was ready to wash all the horror of Guatemala off my hands for a bit and look elsewhere. So it's tough, coming back like this. Honestly, when I finished editing what I'd recorded, I was surprised. I thought I'd gotten further along. The upside, though, is that here in this intermission and in the chapters that follow, I can integrate some of your feedback and commentary into the show. If you've read the blog on the website, this next bit will seem familiar to you. But I think it was worth putting in right here.
The podcast has been out for about 12 weeks now, and I've gotten a couple of scattered comments and responses on two different subjects that I think, in the end, come to the same thing. And I think that those comments were valid, and I think they're important. So I'm going to talk about them. The first suggestion that I've gotten is that I ought to make an effort in the podcast to avoid offending listeners who might come from somewhere further to the right on the political spectrum. And the second is that I ought to be getting more into the why of all this, why the government of the United States was somehow invested in these terrible goings-on in Guatemala. It'll take a while for my responses to come back around and meet each other, but bear with me. In response to the first thing, I guess I'd ask a question. Is it that the show is partisan? Or could it be that listeners are coming to the show with a pre-existing and implicitly partisan complaint? Because the only way that the show could immediately turn you off is if you were under the impression that the United States could literally do no wrong. Which, if you've been an American since 9-11, would be a pretty ludicrous viewpoint, right? I could try to emphasize at the beginning of every episode that Democratic presidents were just as culpable as Republican ones, or vice versa, but that would put the show in the fairness business, and it's not in the fairness business. It's in the history business. If the moralizing that I get up to in the show in the asides, like this one, offends you, ask yourself. And I'm not trying to be condescending or pedantic here. Ask yourself why. Sure, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool leftist, but I try to keep a firewall between that and the history that I do, besides these asides, and my politics aren't where my morality comes from. And the morality is what's at work in these asides. When a right-wing government does what it does in Guatemala in the 1960s, and I mention it on the show, right-wing, quote-unquote, is a definition, not a judgment. When I leave the narrative to one side for a minute and speak more, well, from me, I'm not sermonizing about the political minutiae of policy decisions. I'm speaking about the consequences of that government's activity and its moral fallout. My ethics emerges from somewhere deep in my primordial Catholic past, and it's invested in the sanctity and dignity of human life, not whether that life is left or right or American or other or anything else. When I do what little I can to indict the successive right-wing governments of Guatemala and the U.S. administrations that actively supported them, I'm not doing so because I disagree with the right-left sway of their politics, but because their politics was murdering tens of thousands of innocents. Innocence might sound wrong to the turned-off listener, but the only way that they're not innocent is if the turned-off listener comes to the podcast with an ethics wherein being a liberal or a socialist or a communist is a death sentence in itself. And I criticize the brutality of those administrations' politics because my ethics compels me to be on the side of the innocents, no matter what greater purpose their deaths was supposedly serving. That might sound sanctimonious to you. I mean, as I read it back to myself, it sounds sanctimonious to me. But I don't know what else I can say. I don't care what government is doing which thing to what person. If it's killing them, I can be sure right off the bat that it's not the right thing, without having any idea why they're doing it or what political banner it falls under. Which brings us to the why. What purpose was the massive state-sanctioned torture, rape, and murder of civilians and clergy in Guatemala serving? Part of the reason my answer to that question doesn't appear so often in every episode so far is that it's a difficult question to answer, maybe an impossible one, and a philosophical one, if you let me get away with that word. There are large systemic answers to this question. Political science or international relations might hold that the United States was in a cold war with the Soviet Union and was endeavoring to prevent a Soviet foothold in Guatemala. 
Even though Guatemalan communism had nothing to do with the common turn, communists had little representation in Arbenz's government, and U.S. intervention is what actually sparked the guerrilla movements that grew up in Guatemala. Economists might say that the United States was trying to maintain its economic domination of its sphere of influence by shoring up anti-socialist and anti-communist governments, which would have striven to establish economic independence, with rightist ones, which did not. A historian might contend that the United States, like any great imperial power, was establishing its absolute authority in a buffer zone around its borders. Nationalist, left-leaning governments were unwilling to toe the line, so the United States installed far-right governments that may have been anti-communist, but whose primary characteristic was a willingness to bend to the will of the imperial power. Those are all interesting answers, and they all have some bearing or some ability to model the shape of the large events that make up the joint history of the United States and Guatemala. But at some level, all of them fall apart for me when I go outside the bounds of economic and political science, at least classically, and try to imagine the actual motivations of the actual people involved. Because you see, in poli-sci and in international relations, especially when we're talking about realism, states are black boxes. You're not looking at the motivations of individuals or even of individual administrations, but it's states. And you can say, well... A power like the United States will tend to do this, and a smaller power like Guatemala will tend to do this in response. Great, that's fine. But I'm trying to answer, or at least explore, the moral consequences of what was going on in Guatemala and the rest of the world as the result of the action of the United States. So we can say that the U.S. was imperial or dominant economically or looking to enforce ideological conformity, but none of that explains sufficiently, at least to me, why 200,000 Guatemalans, the vast, vast, overwhelming majority of whom were non-combatants, had to die, often to acts of brutality so extreme that the mind shuts down and refuses to imagine them. When we think about history or economics or political science, both as practitioners and as laypeople, we tend to treat those large numbers as externalities, either as the unfortunate victims of an inevitable process or as a necessary evil in the pursuit of some greater goal. But I want to strip away that thinking that self-styled mode of quote-unquote seeing the big picture and come back to human realities. I want to ask, and I want to make it impossible for listeners of my podcast not to ask themselves, what could justify all this? What possible end goal could come close to justifying the deaths of that many people and the destruction of this country? If I can't imagine anything that I'd like to achieve that would let me write off that much death and suffering, then I'm not sure I can let the government of Guatemala or of the United States off the hook either. Which, when we let go of the geopolitics and try to figure out why Eisenhower, why Dulles, why Kennedy and Kissinger and Carter and Reagan were not just willing but eager, determined to do what they did to Guatemala and Nicaragua and El Salvador and Iran and dozens of other little countries, brings us back to a very philosophical question. Why do people, people who believe themselves to be good people, do bad things? I don't know the answer to that question. Do you? Can you figure out why a man in the Oval Office, with more power to do good than anyone else in the world, and more power and intelligence agencies at his fingertips to observe the consequences of his actions, would then do unspeakable evil? I don't think the economic or political or historical answers come close. You'd have to get at something in the very heart of the human soul to figure that out. Hitler's easy to understand. Hitler hated and feared and so he killed. Why Jimmy Carter fought during all of his four years to get the Congress to fund murderous regimes in Central America when the leftist opponents they were busily murdering had neither the intention nor the means to harm the U.S. in any way? That's a tough question. 
and not one that I'm sure I have the capacity to answer. Which is why I'm not shouting why this horrible shit is happening into the microphone every five minutes. If I knew, I would. But while I think the large answers are compelling, I don't think that they're sufficient. And while I think that at Nuremberg, Jimmy Carter would be found a war criminal beyond any reasonable doubt, I'm not sure that I could say he was an evil man. What I want is for you to come over to my side, and to consider, before all of the great cocktail party theorizing about states and actors and imperatives, the simple sanctity of human life. Not because any particular person might grow up to be the next great something, or because they're the kid of some great somebody, or because they were born under the same flag as you, but just because he or she is human and alive. And I want to make it impossible for you to listen uncritically to anyone that's telling you that something is necessary or unavoidable when it's going to result in tragedy. In the meantime, while we're both trying to figure out the philosophical answer to the philosophical question, I'm going to keep cataloging these disasters and their victims and their perpetrators, because it's important to bear witness. Not because it'll make you smarter or richer or more interesting, but because it's the debt that we, the heirs of the victorious living, owe the defeated and the dead. So as I go on here with the second half of this episode, I'm going to try to get more into that. Why they were doing this, why they thought they were, why they said they were, and why I think it's all going on. But like I said, at a certain point, my capacity to explain it all, to construct a neat little theodicy for the purposes of this show, will run out. All I can do then is lay it all out for you, and you'll have to draw your own conclusions and then apply them to the world around you. So before I end this little intermission, and before I go on to tackling the end of the outline that I left all those weeks ago, I want to paint a picture for you to sum up everything that's been going on in Guatemala over the last five hours, and to get ready for the finale. So imagine a campesino in the highlands, a rural peasant who's young during the 10 years of spring in the early 1950s, and edging into middle age by the time Rios Mont takes power in the 1980s. Try to imagine them, or even imagine yourself as them, as him or her. And remember that for the campesinos, almost everything we've talked about so far is going to be distant. They're on the edges of most of these events, just speaking geographically. Some from every village will have traveled to or worked in the big cities, and some will even have made their way to the United States and back. But for the most part, this campesino is only somewhat aware of the full extent of the forces that will powerfully affect his or her life. In the 1950s, if they're lucky, they'll have a little plot of land in the highlands, just enough space to farm corn and beans and squash, maybe coffee and chilies between the other plants or under trees. A grandmother or two will have an herb garden full of mint and pennyroyal and everything else she needs to mix up medicines. If they're less lucky, the land won't be enough, and for a season or two a year, they'll migrate to the coast and work in crushing conditions and serious danger of death on a large plantation. But then, things change. And in 1953 or so, a man from the government comes and gives this family land. More land than they might ever have imagined owning. And for a few short months, They'll farm this land, and it will turn up more abundance from its lowland fertility than any harvest they've ever seen in the mountains. But then another government man will come with guns and with representatives of the Finquero, or of the United Fruit Company, to evict this family from the land and herd them back to the highland plot from which they came. Life in the mountains is simple and sometimes breathtakingly beautiful. Unlike the life on the coast or what you might have in your head when you think of Guatemala, the air is cool and pure, and on some days when it's clear, you can see over ranges of peaks and misted valleys all the way to the sea. 
But despite that beauty, this campesino's experience with the land reform program has left him wanting more. So when a Spanish priest shows up in the community not to preach, but to form committees and to involve the people in their own worship and organization, he signs up. He becomes a catechist for Catholic action, and when liberation theology makes its way into Guatemala, he is more than ready to hear about a religion that could take him back to when he was prospering on 40 hectares of land reclaimed from the finqueros. Likewise, when that Spanish priest, Father Luis Gurigarán, proposes moving the entire community to the jungle in the Ixcan, a place he's never visited, let alone heard of, he's willing. He packs a bag and hikes for weeks along mountain roads and onto jungle paths barely discernible from the thick foliage around them. He cuts down trees and hollows out a clearing in fear of dengue and malaria and jaguars and snakes and spiders, but hopeful that this, unlike the agrarian reform, will really be a new beginning. And even as this is going on, the military's conducted coups and jostled with itself for leadership. The labor unions have risen up and been beaten down in the cities. In another part of the country entirely, a thousand American Green Berets led the Guatemalan security forces in rooting out a guerrilla insurgency, with 10,000 civilian casualties besides. And chances are, Albert Campesino is only even dimly aware, if at all, of these events. If at some point he made his way to the city to participate in Catholic action schools, he'd be well informed. But if he didn't, for the most part he wouldn't be, until someone who came back to the community could share the news face to face. And for a few years, things really do work out in the jungle. We can't forget that liberation theology was religious, and there might be some sense of a new Jerusalem for this guy and his community. They're living and worshipping together and finding that the desert, or the jungle in this case, is a land of milk and honey. But in the mid-1970s, just as his community, Santa Maria Ceja, is starting to thrive, the government scrutiny that they thought they'd escaped has returned. Soldiers interview him every week. They harass him and demand to see his papers hit on his wife. At night, every few months or every few weeks, they come to raid the priest's house or the storehouse of the collective, accusing him and everyone else of being guerrillas, of being rebels, which makes little sense to them because they've never even seen a guerrilla, let alone collaborated with one. And slowly, the priests who led this movement and brought the people to the jungle begin leaving or disappearing or dying. William Woods from the next town over crashes his plane, or was it shot down? After a particularly bad week, his own priest, Father Luis, leaves for Spain. And when the priests go, the military starts insinuating itself into their places, offering to build airstrips to trade cardamom for them in the cities. And maybe it's at this point that our campesino gets his first real whiff of the guerrillas. Maybe he meets them on the path, or maybe he's in town when they come to teach. But whether or not he decides to join or collaborate or keep his mouth shut, the ideas they're spreading must be appealing given the sense of impending betrayal they must all have at the continuing closeness of the army. Then in 1976, the EGP kills Luis Arenas, the tiger of Iscan, maybe a man that our campesino personally hated, and people start to die and to disappear. Maybe his wife, maybe his son or his daughter, more than one of his friends. Maybe he even finds one of them, blindfolded and shot or mutilated and decapitated, left on the roadside. He stumbles on them, literally, as he heads to town. Maybe they abduct him personally, take him to the base at Playa Grande and beat him and question him, tell him that another villager has named him. They leave him neck deep in a cistern of water or lock him without light or water in a cell they've carved out of a hillside. Maybe he even breaks after they pull out his fingernails or attach wires to his balls or beat him until he throws up blood and thinks that today, finally, is the day he will die. And maybe, like the doctor from Beatrice Manza's testimony, they let him go. 
alive but broken and suspicious of all his neighbors. Who said his name? Were they tortured or did they hate him? Did they envy his land, his wife? Who could he now trust? And then, late in 1981, the army leaves. The guard post by the airstrip is empty and no patrols come through town. Members of the guerrillas, of the EGP, stroll openly into town and celebrate with the people. The revolution has triumphed against Somoza in Nicaragua. Cuba is helping to organize the opposition. They are suddenly, bewilderingly free. And for the first time since the murders started, they have real hope that they might not start again. For months, there is celebrating and banner painting and re-knitting the community ties that have frayed and broken. And one day, as the people have gathered to make the market on Sunday, a boy comes pelting down the path and into the center. The army is coming. Our campesino and what remains of his family flee to the jungle and watch as for three days the army burns and destroys the last ten years of their lives. The cardamom, the ovens, the storehouses, the churches, the schools, the hospital, their houses, their fields, their wells. But at least they are safe. At least they are alive, for now. Until on the fourth day, the army finds a family in the woods. Maybe it's his family. Maybe it's not. But they're people he knows, and well, and he'll be there days later when they go to recover the bodies, torn open, strewn around, blown up by grenades, ripped from the arms and the womb of their mother. I don't know what state he'll be in after that, whether he'll care that someone new, some evangelical named Rios Mont, has promised to change things. I imagine he'll have some inner protest when he's told by the soldiers that he'll have to be part of a civil action patrol, that he'll have to hunt guerrillas and other campesinos hiding in the trees. I imagine he'll feel as though he's betrayed himself when he, at some soldier's urging, sets fire to the makeshift hut of a jungle refugee and burns everything they need to live. And I imagine that when he looks out over the new village, the one that the army made them build, cramped and dirty and walled and barbed wired, that he might not recognize his new Jerusalem. That in that moment, the dream that they'd had and that they'd transplanted to the jungle would finally, irrevocably, be dead along with the love and the trust and the hope that they had used to make it manifest. And in the background of all this, marking his every step and precipitating each new terrible event, was the United States, a power that he probably would never have seen and may never have even been aware of unless a soldier like the officer in Cuarto Pueblo shouted out its name. The United States had a complicated relationship with Guatemala, part of and affected by the Cold War, U.S. politics, and everything else going on in the world at the time. The original intervention, the coup in 1954, was not well thought out. 
neither strategically nor morally. It was, in an unforgivable sense, a kind of lark, an adventure, a convenient way to try out this new agency, the CIA, and this new tactic, the cost-effective coup. It was ostensibly a strike against communist incursion in Central America, but it was also a corrupt effort to protect the financial interests of the United Fruit Company, to which a frightening number of powerful American politicians owed their past or future fortunes. The continuing aftermath of that coup presented a problem to all subsequent U.S. administrations. In some sense, Guatemala was our baby now. We had an interest in it showing progress towards freedom and democracy, in exactly the same way that the Soviet Union and Mao's China had an interest in successful communism emerging in Vietnam. Guatemala and all the other countries in Central America were a visible test of whether or not our side was winning this global war between quote-unquote freedom and quote-unquote slavery and communism and servitude. So at some point, as the casualties mounted and the number of guns and advisors and manuals we sent down grew, it became unthinkable to give any ground. Because for Carter to say, all right, well, we're done. We were wrong. It really is the indigenous and the socialists and the workers' unions that should be running this country. Would be to lose face, in this framework, to the Soviets and the non-aligned movement and the American people. So we had to keep sending the guns and we had to keep pretending that things were okay, because to stop would constitute a defeat out of all proportion to any real quantifiable interests a country like the United States could have in a country like Guatemala. Have no doubt either that the United States knew exactly what was going on in Guatemala and to what extent our puppet regimes had fallen short of anything like freedom or democracy. In his book, Manufacturing Consent, Noam Chomsky uses Guatemala as a case study on how the American press covered atrocities in the Soviet sphere and how that coverage differed when it was turned toward repression in our own client states, of which Guatemala was one. And what becomes clear is that while the State Department and the White House encouraged rabid, sensational reporting of the killings of priests in, say, Poland, it did just the opposite for the murders of religious workers, even American ones, in Guatemala, going so far as to assist in Guatemalan government cover-ups and stifling any other possible narratives through press releases and leaks from the embassy and from the State Department. And what's interesting is that while Lucas Garcia was in power, the United States government assured the public and the papers that things were improving in Guatemala. And when Rios Mont was in power, likewise, that things were improving. Under his successor, that things were improving. But while they were trumpeting Rios Mont, Chomsky noted something interesting, which is that post facto, state would admit that maybe things hadn't been so great under Lucas Garcia after all. From the book now, quote, the Reagan policy towards Guatemala was, as with South Africa, constructive engagement. From the beginning, the administration strove to embrace and provide arms to the military governments. Ongoing mass murder was merely an inconvenience. One method by which the administration sought to rehabilitate our relations with the Guatemalan regimes was by continual lying about their human rights record, with Reagan himself setting the standard. In July 1981, the State Department assured a congressional committee that the Lucas Garcia government was successfully attacking the guerrillas while, quote, taking care to protect innocent bystanders, unquote. Amnesty International, by contrast, gave detailed evidence that the thousands of murders were almost entirely governmental in origin, including those of the death squads, whose victims were targeted in an annex of Guatemala's National Palace under the direct supervision of President Lucas Garcia. With the overthrow of Lucas Garcia, suddenly... As if by magic, the Reagan administration line altered, 
and the State Department could not, quote, emphasize strongly enough the favorable contrast between the current human rights situation in Guatemala and the situation last December under Lucas Garcia, unquote. Melvin Levitsky, a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights, told a congressional committee that, quote, the United States cannot easily sustain a relationship with a government which engages in violence against its own people, unquote, as with the Lucas Garcia regime. When Lucas Garcia was in power, the State Department found his to be a caring regime that protected the innocent and could not determine that the government was doing any killings. When Lucas Garcia ousted, the State Department discovered that he was an indiscriminate murderer and assumed a high moral tone about his behavior. That is, the State Department implicitly conceded that it was lying earlier and counted on the press not to point this out. Of course, the reason for the switch was to help make a favorable case for Lucas Garcia's successor, Rios Montt. Unquote. Every president after Eisenhower inherited Guatemala. Amongst all the Cold War considerations, Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, other brushfire wars in Central America, proxy war by South Africa, Castro and Cuba, there was this, this little country, this nothing, that could neither get its brutality in order and defeat the opposition, nor quietly transition to healthy democracy. So every administration just kept it going. Without re-examining the particulars of strategy or the morality of the whole venture, it's like when you're dangerously behind on a project at work, and you keep telling your colleagues and your boss that it's fine, while secretly it's all gone to shit. Except for them, it's not an important project. It's some little thing that you keep forgetting about until your boss brings it up. And that's the feeling that I keep getting. Not evil, not scheming wrongdoing, just apathy and disdain. So they keep funneling money down there and hoping for the best. And with each new murderous president in Guatemala, they put on a good face, tell the press that now this country's heading in the right direction. And then everyone quietly and politely forgets that we'd already said it was already heading that way for decades now. And while the State Department was playing this game, and the White House was engaging in snow job after snow job so as not to lose face on the world stage, people, real people, not pieces on a chessboard or statistics in an amnesty report were being destroyed year after year, one by one, and in the tens of thousands. For what exactly? I'm not sure I could say. What I can say is that aid from the United States to the governments of Guatemala under Lucas Garcia and Rios Montt was massive and sustained. From Cultural Survival Quarterly, quote, U.S. military and economic aid deliveries to the Lucas Garcia government did not cease during the Carter administration, despite public criticism of human rights violations. Between fiscal years 1978 and 1980, the U.S. government provided Guatemala with $8.5 million in commercial arms sales. In 1979, the U.S. also provided Guatemala with $24.7 million in economic aid, unquote. You might point out that the non-military aid had nothing to do with slaughtering innocents, that it was actually a good-faith effort to improve conditions in Guatemala. In one sense, you'd be on the right track, since most of the aid sent to Guatemala was economic and not military. Quoting from CSQ again, quote, Throughout this period, the U.S. government and multilateral lending institutions provided Guatemala with large amounts of non-military development aid. Between 1962 and 1979, for example, U.S. economic aid to Guatemala totaled $294 million. During the same period, the International Development Bank, the IDB, over which the U.S. exercised outsized control, provided Guatemala with $384.7 million for numerous projects in agriculture and fishing, 
transportation and communications, electric power development, rural education, urban housing, and public health. As an extremely poor country with a large rural population, Guatemala qualified for special loan privileges at the IDB and the World Bank. And although the military gracefully accepted this economic largesse, it neither agreed to the implementation of a comprehensive agrarian reform, nor did it incorporate the rural poor in the process of economic growth." Unquote. So you could say that was clean aid, maybe. That roads and telephone lines and jungle colonization and rural education and all these other things that the government of Guatemala wanted had nothing to do with murdering Indios in the countryside. But that's untrue in two ways. The first is that every dollar that the U.S. spent on infrastructure projects was a dollar that the government of Guatemala could spend on the military instead. Whether or not we were giving them rifles, we were subsidizing the purchase thereof. And second, all of the infrastructure projects in which we invested, like communications, highways, bridges, power plants, and the colonization of the northern transversal strip, were projects which allowed the government of Guatemala to more effectively police the Maya population in the countryside. USAID, the United States Agency for International Development, wasn't and isn't a bad agency, but it could be turned towards bad ends. And American aid didn't always take the form of military training or military payments or even USAID projects supporting Guatemalan objectives. Sometimes it was as simple as backing up the official narrative over the one that was true. Beatriz Mons describes what happened to several USAID reports. Quote, it is remarkable how the information provided by the research team's field study became sanitized and edited by the agency in its official published versions. Original field report, quote, Three of these 18 settlements, Trinitaria, Santa Clara, and El Quetzal, were exterminated by the military, unquote. USAID's official version, quote, Three of the inhabited 18 settlements no longer have settlers, unquote. Original report, quote, it would have been difficult to anticipate the closing of the project in 1982 by the Guatemalan military and the killings of colonists that took place during the military occupation. The military action caused the failure of one cooperative and inhibited the development of others, unquote. USAID's edited version, quote, It would have been difficult to anticipate the closing of the project in 1982 by the Guatemalan military and the loss of colonists that took place during the military occupation, unquote. The cooperatives were not even mentioned, end long quote. It's like I've been saying throughout this second half, that it's not exactly that people are evil. And the folks on the ground with USAID, they're only one professional step away from being Peace Corps volunteers. They were in Guatemala because they cared about the peasants there, and they legitimately wanted to improve their lives and the situation in the country. The problem was that they were only the bottom rung of a massive state apparatus that, in the end, was serving not the interests of Guatemala or any other country, but that of the United States. And the end result of their work, no matter how honest they tried to make their field reports, was the direct support of a regime in Guatemala that was working to exterminate vast swathes of its own citizens. From Beatriz Mons, quote, At the peak period of the massacres, during the presidency of Efrain Rios Montt, the United States Embassy in Guatemala was effectively a public relations mouthpiece for the armed forces. On December 4, 1982, well into Rios Montt's tenure and while massacres were ongoing, President Reagan met with Rios Montt in Honduras and dismissed reports of human rights abuses in Guatemala published by America's Watch, Amnesty Internationals, and others as a, quote, bum rap, unquote. America's Watch pointed out at the time that, quote, the following month the Reagan administration announced that it was ending a five-year embargo on arms sales to Guatemala and had approved sale of $8.36 million worth of military spare parts to that country. 
This sale was approved despite a U.S. law forbidding arms sales to governments engaged in consistent pattern of gross violations of internationally recognized human rights. End short quote and long quote. We were involved. We knew it was not working. And we stayed involved anyway. You said that if the Nuremberg principles were applied, every post-World War II president would be uh, indictable. It's probably true. Can we run, uh, run down them real fast? Reagan? I mean, Reagan is the first president to have been uh, condemned by the International Court of Justice for what they called the unlawful use of force, meaning international terrorism, in the war against Nicaragua. Again, that's just for starters. Uh, they also, uh, the Security Council, uh, endorsed it in two resolutions, both of which were vetoed by the United States. Luckily, and maybe that's the first time in this whole ordeal I can use the word without a trace of irony, either intentional or unintentional, the High Command, by mid-1983, was beginning to feel about Rios Mont the same way that it had about Lucas Garcia, that his counterinsurgency policies had wandered out of the realm of sanity, that they had become counterproductive, and that it was time for a change. So on the 8th of August, 1983, the Minister of Defense, General Oscar Humberto Mejia Victores, deposed Rios Montt in a nearly bloodless coup, citing palace corruption and the presence of religious fanatics in the government, a not-so-veiled reference to Rios Montt's rabid evangelicalism and his special persecution of Catholics. And almost like that, things changed. Almost because no matter how quickly or genuinely intentioned any transition or peace process was going to happen, Violence of the magnitude that Guatemala had been experiencing for decades at this point doesn't just stop. But almost like that, almost just like that, because on the 1st of July, 1984, Mejia Victores brought about the election of a constituent assembly from among the Guatemalan population whose job would be to draft a new democratic constitution. That document went into effect the day it was ratified, May 30th, 1985 and the first free elections in Guatemala since the 1950s took place the following autumn, with a civilian, Vinicio Cerezo, stepping into the presidential palace on January 14, 1986. And almost just like that, military rule in Guatemala was over. Why was this coup the one that finally started bringing it all to a close? I can only speculate. What's for sure is that there was a change in the wind. I, Rigoberta Menchu, came out in 1983, and provoked a landslide of scrutiny into what was happening that had been wholly absent beforehand. Any increased attention into the affairs of Central America made the Reagan administration's up till then unwavering support of right-wing regimes much less publicly acceptable, and when Iran-Contra broke in 1986, more difficult still. Likewise, even though what we properly understand to be the internet was still a decade away, the world was getting smaller and the spread of images and information easier. And because of the work of anthropologists like Manz and Faya, hiding massacres in the jungle was becoming ever harder. And it could be that, after Lucas Garcia and Rios Montt together, the general staff, made up of men who had been born into violence and who had participated in escalating violence all of their lives, had finally had enough, or had decided that if it went on any longer, they'd no longer have a country left to rule. They'd be like Assad in Syria, kings of a pile of rubble and ashes and corpses. In any case, and I realize as well as you do how unsatisfying that phrase is, Guatemala was now moving forward. President Vinicio Cerezo worked to reinforce civil liberties in the country, to increase civilian control of the military, and to improve on the economic conditions that had precipitated first the Ten Years of Spring, and then the guerrilla movements that followed it. 
Despite those efforts, the guerrilla war continued, with the Guatemalan Revolutionary Union, made up of what was left of the guerrilla army of the poor, the Guatemalan Workers' Party, and the Organization of the People in Arms, battling the Guatemalan military in the bush. In May 1988, and again in May 1989, right-winged elements of the military tried to oust Benicio Cerezo in a coup, but both times, the military high command stood by the democratic transition, along with the great mass of the Guatemalan populace, and the revolts came to nothing. And on the 14th of January 1991, Jorge Antonio Serrano Elias took office, becoming the first civilian president to peacefully succeed the previous one in all of Guatemalan history, since Arbenz, way back in the 1950s, had been an army colonel. Serrano Elias continued working on controlling the military, and in 1992 he succeeded in prevailing upon the general staff to sit down with the URNG, the Guatemalan Revolutionary Union, for talks, opening the way for a peace process that would continue for the next four years. In May 1993, though, Serrano Elias, frustrated by widespread corruption in the Congress and the Supreme Court, tried to institute an autogolpe, a self-coup, temporarily dissolving the Constitution and civil liberties. The military again stood up for the democratic process, probably to the surprise of every man and woman in Guatemala, and Serrano Elias fled the country. In his place, following constitutional procedure, the Congress elected the human rights ombudsman, Ramiro de León Carpillo, to finish out the presidential term. The ombudsman was a new office created in the first year of new Guatemalan democracy as a symbol of where the country would be headed. Carpillo lived up to his charge and after taking office demanded the resignation of the entire Congress and the Supreme Court in order to root out the same corruption that Serrano Elias had tried to attack. Because of Carpillo's impeccable moral stature and massive public support, these two bodies did resign and following an agreement brokered by the Catholic Church, were then filled with members of anti-corruption parties. All that in place, Carpillo finally had the tools to begin the peace process in earnest, and a slew of agreements between the military, the government of Guatemala, and the National Revolutionary Union would follow from 1994 through 1996, when a general amnesty began the reintegration of the guerrillas into Guatemalan society. The parties involved reached their first major agreement in Oslo in 1994, that accord set up the framework for continuing negotiations and established the Commission for Historical Clarification, whose report has been the backbone of this series. From that report, quote, What followed were a series of agreements linking formal peace with reconceptualization of Guatemalan society, including promises to address many of the root causes of the nation's unequal and repressive social structure. In November 1995, the government and the URNG signed an agreement outlining a commitment to defend indigenous rights and to create a more inclusive and respectful society. In May 1996, they signed an agreement outlining broad policy reform on social and economic issues, including improving access to land for the poor, although avoiding comprehensive land reform, expanding education, health and social services, strengthening labor protections, and increasing tax collection to enable the state to cover the costs of social reform. In September 1996, the parties agreed to support civilian control of government by restructuring the police, demobilizing the community patrols, or PACs, dissolving key elements of the security forces, significantly reducing the size of the army, and redefining its mission to address internal rather than external security, end quote. By the end of 1996, the amnesty was in place and Guatemalan society was positioned, theoretically, to move on. One key element was still missing, though, and that was a full exploration of the violence of the 1960s, the 70s, and the 80s, 
its victims, its perpetrators, and its causes. That might seem like it ought to have been a known quantity at the time, but in fact the extent of the violence and the distribution of its victims were largely unknown. And you and I only know, thanks in large part to the work of the Commission for Historical Clarification, what I have referred to throughout this podcast as the CEH. From the report itself, quote, The Guatemalan Commission for Historical Clarification is a truth commission, a formal investigative body charged with documenting and analyzing past political violence. Truth commissions seek to provide an objective account of severe political repression, giving voice to victims, memorializing suffering, and establishing mechanisms through which the public can engage the past as a necessary ground for rebuilding devastated societies, unquote. Truth commissions like the CEH were a huge part of the last decades of the 20th century, documenting the violence in the peace processes in South Africa, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and dozens of other transitions from violence to wealth. If not violence, then something better. And truth commissions might actually factually be part of why the United States might, if we in the world are lucky, might not repeat all of its mistakes in the next century. Because when all of the Reagan-Bush war hawks are dead, the people taking their places will have all of these reports about what we did and how it turned out at their fingertips. But inasmuch as both the military and the rebels agreed in Oslo that the CEH ought to exist, they were less in line with its structure and its constraints. Because of pressure from the military and the government of Guatemala, the CEH was given only three spots for commissioners, and only six months to conduct its investigation, with another possible six as an extension. Maybe even more egregiously, the CEH was prevented from quote-unquote individualizing its information, meaning that while it could name institutions as perpetrators of violence, it could not name names in a way that would be conducive to further prosecutions of those people which was not just allowed, but called for under the Amnesty Agreement of 1996. Proof enough of wrongdoers' impunity was that Rios Montt later got himself elected to the Congress. Twice. Despite its technically limited small size, the CEH ended up involving a support staff of 269, about half and half international in Guatemala. I've mentioned before that I've only been able to get my hands on a 300-page English synopsis of the report, but the original document, when it was published in Spanish in 1999, came to 12 massive volumes, including over 7,000 witness testimonies that collected the experiences of more than 20,000 people. It is an impressive document. La memoria personal es la responsable de la capacidad de recordar, de retener la experiencia vivida, convirtiéndola en aprendizajes, convicciones y sentimientos muy propios suyos y de nadie más. Es parte de la personalidad y la identidad de los seres humanos. La memoria colectiva es la construcción que parte de los recuerdos de las comunidades, de grupos o espacios en donde las personas participan para que no se pierda su historia. The CEH and its report have informed a huge amount of the material in this cast, and you may have noticed how often I've quoted from my copy. But there are two things that it addressed that I've left to the side for the duration, and I'd like to turn to them now. The first is that the CEH takes its own crack at figuring out why what happened happened. As to why unrest exists in Guatemala in the first place, the CEH mentions several things that we have here. That Guatemala is crushingly unequal, possessed of an authoritarian state that privileged a tiny white minority above a landless and exploited peasant Maya class. 
But the CEH also looks at how that local context exploded because of its relationship to events in the world at large. Quote, From the mid-1950s on, through overt and covert means, the United States significantly influenced domestic Guatemalan politics as part of a regional foreign policy defined by the Cold War. These efforts linked economic development with military aid, creating a broad political alliance to combat the spread of communist beliefs. While ostensibly favoring democracy, the rigid nature of this approach led the United States to support governments, in Guatemala and elsewhere, that viewed virtually any organized opposition to dominant social and political interests as a fundamental threat to national security. These factors ultimately led to a tragic 20th century case of how state terror came to define national politics. In part, the conflict can be seen as an example of larger, regional phenomena. Guatemala was one of a number of Latin American regimes that relied on systematic human rights violations as a key element of governance and a focused policy response to movements for social change. From the 1970s through the 1980s, the majority of Latin Americans lived under authoritarian, often military governments linking nationalism, centralized bureaucratic management, and a Cold War-era vision of national security. Many of these governments committed widespread human rights abuses against those seen to be challenging the state. The subsequent revelation of the severity and brutality of these acts played a key role in delegitimizing authoritarian rule and enabling Latin America's transition to democracy. Unquote. The commission, through years of interviews and research, eventually settled on 200,000 as the number of Guatemalans who had been killed in the course of the conflict, the staggering majority by the forces of the state. Another 50,000 had been disappeared, likewise by the government, and their families would forever go on without closure. 250,000 people is the population of Madison, Wisconsin. Wiped out for what, given that the consensus of the peace accords was a return to the Arbenz Arevola agenda of the Ten Years of Spring, would seem to have been nothing at all. Not only had the government of Guatemala unleashed hell on its population, the CEH determined that it had done so in a way that clearly constituted an act of genocide. Quote, Guatemala ratified the Genocide Convention on January 13, 1950, and it was enforced during the time of the armed confrontation. The CEH used this international instrument as the legal reference for its investigation and analysis of genocide. Article 2 of the Convention defines the crime of genocide and its elements as follows. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group, as such. A. Killing members of the group. B. Causing serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group. C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within that group. Or E. Forcibly transferring children of that group to another group. The acts defining genocide have remained constant up until the present day. For example, the Statute of the International Criminal Court adopted at an international conference in Rome on July 17, 1998, describes the crime of genocide in exactly the same terms. The convention establishes that the protected groups or potential victims of genocide must be national, ethnic, racial, or religious groups. It is very important to distinguish between the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part, that is, the positive determination to do so and the motives behind such intent. In order to prove the crime of genocide, it is only necessary to demonstrate that there exists an intent to destroy the group regardless of motive. For example, if the motive to destroy an ethnic group 
is not pure racism, but rather a military objective, one would still define the crime as genocide. An act meets the requirements of the crime of genocide as defined by the convention, even if it is part of a larger policy that is not strictly aimed at physical extermination. In this sense, it is significant to distinguish between a genocidal policy and acts of genocide. A genocidal policy exists when the final objective of the actions is the extermination of a group in whole or in part. Acts of genocide exist when the final objective is not the extermination of a group, but rather other goals of a political, economic, military, or other nature, while the means used to achieve these objectives involves the extermination in whole or in part of the group." In the course of the conflict, the government and the military in Guatemala began to conflate the guerrillas with indigenous populations in general. From a CIA communication in 1982, quote, the belief, well documented, of the army that the Ixil indigenous population is totally in favor of the EGP has created a situation in which one can expect that the army will leave no survivors equally among combatants and non-combatants, unquote. The army began to identify and target things as specific as the traje, or traditional dress, and family groups of particular divisions of Mayas, or even of particular villages. Quote, material expressions of Mayan identity such as traje and language led to threats and abuse. In Guatemala, traje expresses a strong identification with a specific ethnic group. The use of particular traje identifies women with their communities of origin. Ixil women were identified and persecuted for wearing their traje. Likewise, from 1980 to 1983, the army perpetrated acts of violence against community leaders. Quoting from a witness, Then the army heard that they had coordinated among various families. That's why the army began to control that too. That's how they cut relationships among families. That's when they destroyed traditions, the way of life that existed among the people. Because people always knew how to defend themselves, how to provide justice for certain problems. But the war started, la violencia, and that is where this was forgotten. Unquote. Likewise, the violence that the army and death squads visited on indigenous populations tended to veer into massacres and atrocities more often than not. Quoting from a witness in the CEH, Quote, it was a Sunday at four in the morning when they arrived. The army came to destroy the aldea of Piedras Blancas. They burned the people in their houses while they were asleep. Men, women, children, everyone together. They stabbed them and then threw them into the flames while they were alive. In other houses, the soldiers tortured the victims by cutting off their tongues before killing them. The massacres were committed as part of a military plan that targeted the non-combatant civilian population. In all cases, military attacks were carried out without facing any form of resistance or combat. There were torture centers in almost every community. Under threat of death, the army would force patrulleros, members of the patrols, to torture and execute people. Quoting again from a witness, With everyone together, they would call out those that were on the list. They separated the victims and took them to a wooded area and tied them up. Then the soldiers ordered the patrulleros to give a machete blow to each of the people that were tied up. One patrullero refused to torture his neighbors. He was kicked and badly beaten. End quote. The CEH felt and found that in the light of all available evidence, the Guatemalan state had committed genocide against its Mayan indigenous people, probably over the whole course of the conflict, but definitely and provably during the regimes of Luis Garcia and Rios Montt, while the strategy of scorched earth was in effect. Unfortunately, the CEH had no power to name names, and even if it had, it's unlikely that the judiciary in Guatemala would have been either willing or able to try cases. Even harder would have been finding government prosecutors. 
Because of the limitations under which the Commission for Historical Clarification had to work, the Catholic Church set up its own Truth Commission to ensure that at least one genuinely honest document would exist and chronicle Guatemala's tribulations. The groundwork for that Truth Commission, officially known as the Recovery of Historical Memory Project, was laid by the bishops of Guatemala long beforehand, when Bishop Juan José Gerardí Conedera became head of the Office of Human Rights of the Archbishopric in 1988. Now, I don't know if you recognize that name, but Gerardí has been in the background of this process for the last three hours. He was an early adherent of liberation theology. He was a protector of the poor on the level of, but with less renown than, Bishop Oscar Romero in El Salvador. And he was the guy who, a couple shows back, closed the Diocese of El Quiche to try to prevent the murder of more priests and churchgoers there. Gerardí worked on the historical memory project at the same time that the CEH was gathering its own evidence, and he and the Catholic Church published a report, Nunca Más, Never Again or Never More, a year earlier than the CEH, on April 24, 1998. Two days later, an army colonel and a captain, with the help of a low-level priest, entered the garage of the parish house of Bishop Gerardí's church, and beat him to death with a slab of concrete, damaging his body so badly that he, in the end, had to be identified by the Episcopal ring on his finger. All three of his murderers were tried, and two have, one this very year, been themselves murdered in prison, which is an appropriate portrait of the situation in Guatemala up to today. A mix of heroism and the likes of indigenous organizations, the Catholic Church, and honest men and women in the civil service with the same brutality and violence that has marked the country at least since independence. Justice and injustice. From the CEH, quote, Even now, more than a decade after the negotiated peace, the nation is among the poorest and most unequal in the hemisphere. Over half of all Guatemalans live below the poverty line, with 15% living in extreme poverty. More than 40% of children under 5 are chronically malnourished, and the country has some of the region's worst social statistics regarding health, housing, and education. Although the peace process created substantial improvements in legal rights and basic protections for its Mayan population, Guatemala remains ethnically divided between indigenous people, representing between 40 and 60% of the total population, and the nation's Ladinos. Poverty and marginalization are substantially worse among the Maya, over 75% of whom live in poverty, and over 25% in extreme poverty." Unquote. The effects of the counterinsurgency operations that scorched the countryside in the 1970s and 1980s are still very much a part of Guatemalan life today. Malnutrition being widespread among the Maya population is itself evidence of permanent damage to traditional lifeways, since the corn, squash, beans, milpa system that the Maya had farmed proficiently from the time their people came into existence up until the destruction of their communities and the shared knowledge during the violence, is perfectly adequate for the feeding of the human body. The CEH points to other lingering effects of the destruction of the body politic in Guatemala. Quote, Analyzing the consequences of the armed confrontation requires engaging with the multiple tragedies of this entire period, the loss of so many men, women, and children, and of their dreams and potential, the impoverishment of the country as a whole and of Mayan communities in particular the collapse of the country's democratic institutions, and the destruction of basic norms of life and coexistence. These issues lead to a fundamental question. End quote. Later on that same section, a witness says, quote, The consequence of the armed confrontation is that we can no longer trust. It's as if the people have gotten worse, that they no longer have any respect. The people who were around during the time of the patrols, how they like to carry weapons, were doing bad things. Before the violence, we were closer. We communicated more with each other. 
We came together to work in the community. Now it's difficult. We don't respect each other anymore. There are lots of divisions. There is no more friendship." Unquote. Efforts on the part of the military to make all organization taboo worked. From another witness, quote, In the deepest part of their consciousness, people had it drilled into them that there are things that are forbidden, things that cannot be done, such as getting involved with student groups, because they say that they are communists, that by participating in them, they would be killed. This is something that younger generations have very embedded in their consciousness. Now it is very hard to get people together. The youth say, those that get involved do so because they want to die. La violencia changed us. We had to forget about the organization we had in our community before La Violencia, our experience in the cooperative. Well, we can't remember anymore. We can only remember what we'd suffered during all those years, as if that erased everything that came before." Unquote. And the forced complicity, the ways in which the army made villagers, whether members of the PACs or newly conscripted soldiers, participate in the violence against their community has permanently changed social relationships in the country. Quoting from another witness now, Quote, those who raped us grew accustomed to raping women. There's no respect. There are no punishments for the rapists. The youth have also learned this. A woman isn't worth anything. A woman can't defend herself. If she doesn't speak Spanish, she can't file a complaint. And if she tries to fight back, they threaten her. They insult her. They call her a bad woman. There is always fear. They tell us that peace was signed, but they, those responsible for the rapes, are left alone. They know they can do whatever they want. They're the authorities. So what sort of peace is this? End quote. So where does this leave us? It's not a happy ending. Not really. Democracy looks like it's firmly in place in Guatemala, and barring U.S. intervention in Latin American politics of the kind and on the scale of what went on in the 20th century, it will probably stay that way. Along with all the other post-transitional governments, a group that includes almost every country in the hemisphere. But democracy aside, how's Guatemala doing? I know since my version of the CEH was published, its economic situation, both the bare poverty and the inequality, haven't gotten much better. I know that it's in the race for the highest murder rate in Central America, a place where the violence of Chicago or Detroit aren't even in the running. I know that activists, environmental, political, social, are still found dead, month to month. But I also know that Guatemala's fate is finally, largely, in Guatemalan hands. It may take generations for all of the ex-military, ex-death squad, ex-PAC members to die and for a more innocent tide of Guatemalans to rise up and steer their country. Whatever it is that happens, it will take time, and it will be fragile. What's striking me over and over again is the fragility of all the institutions we hold to be good. Democracy, a judiciary, the UN, whatever you want. For them to work, you need trust and faith. Trust in each other, faith in the system. Those things take years, if not decades, to build up, and the sad fact of human endeavor is that they take very little time to bring down. Authoritarian rule, totalitarian rule, rule by terror can be enforced through violence at the point of a gun, and peace and growth and human progress are always and will always be at the mercy of men with guns. We in the U.S., with some nominal democratic control of the men who control the guns, have a responsibility to see where they're going and why. I'm going to let one last quote from the CEH take us out of this show and this series and on to the next thing. Quote, No one today can be sure that the enormous challenge of reconciliation, through knowledge of the truth, can be successfully faced. 
Above all, it is necessary to recognize the facts of history and learn from the nation's suffering. To a great extent, the future of Guatemala depends on the responses of the state and society to the tragedies that nearly all Guatemalans have experienced personally. The erroneous belief that the end justifies the means converted Guatemala into a country of death and sadness. It should be remembered once and for all that there are no values superior to the lives of human beings, and thereby superior to the existence and well-being of an entire national community. The state has no existence of its own, but rather it is purely an organizational tool by which a nation addresses its vital interests. Thousands are dead. Thousands mourn. Reconciliation, for those who remain, is impossible without justice. Miguel Ángel Asturias, Guatemala's Nobel laureate for literature, said, The eyes of the buried will close together on the day of justice, or they will never close. With sadness and pain, we have fulfilled the mission entrusted to us. We place the CEH's report, this memory of silence, into the hands of every Guatemalan, the men and women of yesterday and today, so that future generations may be aware of the enormous calamity and tragedy suffered by their people. May the lessons of this report help us to consider, hear, and understand others, and be creative as we live in peace. End quote. So that's the end of the first full run of Safe for Democracy. If you've been following along since the beginning, you know it's been a long time coming. That's due to a few different factors, the most important of which is, first, I want to get this right, which means a lot of reading. And the second is that Safe for Democracy is a one-man operation. I'm a freelancer, part journalist, part translator, and it pays all right, but not great, so all of the work that goes into the podcast has to happen in the spaces when I'm not earning money. None of that is to complain, but to explain, and to thank you for your patience as I've turned these shows out, and your ongoing patience as I start on the next series about Iran. Before I end this very long episode, though, I want to leave you with one last thought. I've got a fan, not of this show, but of me, and stuff I've been writing since the early days of Peace Corps, back in 2013. She's about my parents' age, and as I understand, she's on the conservative side of the political spectrum. Not Trumpish, but the kind of conservative that has gone unrepresented in American politics for, well, forever. A compassionate conservative in the truest sense of the word. And God knows why, but she likes what I write. This show, though, she has a little trouble with. Not, as you might think, of the denial variety. But rather, since because of prior experience, she's inclined to believe I'm telling the truth, a kind of dilemma. 
She's American and she loves her country. And as far as this podcast is concerned, that leaves her with two problems. The first is that while I can hold myself somewhat apart from all this because I was born in 1991, her birth date's somewhat earlier. And she was around for some of what I'm talking about. So am I blaming her for it? And second, well, she's compassionate, but the picture I'm painting conflicts radically and more or less totally with her worldview, as far as the U.S. goes. What is she supposed to do with all this information besides shutting down and blocking it out again? I don't know about you, but those are two pretty good questions, and not simple or easy ones to answer. As to the first, unless you were a Carter, Reagan, Bush, Warhawk, no, I'm not blaming you for what went on in Guatemala. And most of the people responsible for the original Arben's coup are already dead, gone on to whatever hopefully just reckoning awaits them. If you weren't one of those guys, I can't blame you, and I wouldn't want to. We heard in this episode that the U.S. government went to great lengths to obscure the truth of what was going on, and for a variety of reasons, the U.S. press collaborated in that effort. Unless you were determinedly looking into things from 1965 until about 85 or so, you wouldn't have had a way to know what was going on in Guatemala. The problem is that now you do know, and once you know, it's hard not to see yourself in some small way as a collaborator. The taxes you paid, the people you voted into office, and your willingness to go along with things, to ignore your niggling doubts. And that brings me to her second problem. Now that you know, or now that you've heard all this, what do you do with it? Well, the first thing I want you to realize is that being one of the people that recognizes that the U.S. doesn't have a perfect or clean or maybe even a good record abroad doesn't make you a bad American. No matter what the parties of the right say, real patriotism has never been about cheerleading. Do you remember when the Republicans and even the Democrats were piling on everyone who criticized the president after 9-11 and up through the first couple of years of the Iraq war? And do you remember how we all pretty much bought that idea, me included? True patriotism doesn't have anything to do with standing behind your leaders as they do awful stuff. It's about standing up for what you see to be the real values of your country and criticizing and opposing your leaders and their policies every way you know how. So what do I want you to do with all this? I want you to be skeptical. Every time someone gets on TV to tell you about real America or real Americans or the support you owe to whatever war de jure they're getting up to, I want you to sit down and really think about it. And more than that, I want you to start thinking of all the poor brown folks who stand at the other ends of our policies and our weapons not as they want you to, as statistics or collateral damage or unfortunate consequences, but as people, as real as you or me and with as much a right to life and dignity as us. And I want you to share the knowledge. Share this show, sure. But share an awareness that things might not always be as the White House press secretary would like them to seem. I want you to fight the faux patriotic narrative with the real one. With your family, with your friends, and when push comes to warlike shove, to fight it with your senators and your congressmen too. The state might represent the United States, but the state is not the country. You are. You listening to this, you are the country. And you don't owe the state one solitary drop of your patriotism or your loyalty when it goes down south to make a living hell of the country of somebody else. And as long as we still have some sort of functioning democracy, that's what you can and should be doing. And that, finally, is the end of this episode. Safe for Democracy is my one-man band. 
It is written, recorded, edited, produced, uploaded, Facebooked, tweeted, web-designed, and shilled for by me, Jonathan Coombs. And as with every episode, you can find the bibliography for this one at safefordemocracy.com, along with some more words, pictures, and maps. There's a blog there, too, with some passable stuff, along with a guide that'll take you through the process of rating the show on iTunes. The continuing survival of this podcast depends on it getting views, so subscribe to it on every service you've ever heard of. Have a group listen when your family meets up for Thanksgiving. Talk about it to your friends till they're absolutely sick of you. Comment on it. Send me letters. Give me feedback or hate mail or a Facebook share or two. Next time, hopefully soon, we're going back to Eisenhower, Mohammed Mossadegh, the Shah, and Operation Ajax in Iran. I hope you'll come along with us. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.